The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, my task tonight is to set the, the Old Testament background for the understanding of the concept of the kingdom of God. And I plan to use the Psalms, but especially I'm going to use Psalm 2 uh, as my entry point into that discussion. My reason for doing that, well, it's the Old Testament. I had to find somewhere in the Old Testament that talked about the kingdom of God. That text, Psalm 2, more than any other, really nails so many elements of what the kingdom of God is about. Uh, that must be the case because Psalm 2, along with Psalm 110, Uh, the the two most quoted psalms in the New Testament. So when the New Testament writers think kingdom of God, heck, when they think about anything, they think think about Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So I'm on firm ground starting there um, when I'm talking about the kingdom of God. First, a couple of general comments about the kingdom of God, or at least what it it is not. First, the, the kingdom of God should not be confused with the concept of the sovereignty of God. Um, at least not in the way that that phrase is typically used in the Reformed tradition. That particular doctrine finds its clearest expression in section 3.1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, where it says, God from all eternity did by by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. In other words, basically to overstate it or oversimplify it, um, nothing happens outside of God's will. And all that God decrees will come to pass. Now, that's a great biblical doctrine, but it's not what the Bible has in mind when it talks about the kingdom of God. In fact, the biblical concept of the kingdom of God actually assumes that much happens outside of God's will, if I can put it that way. And and the kingdom is only manifest when creation, and humanity in particular, begins to do the will, begins to change its anti-God will and do God's will. In other words, when it begins to submit to the will of God. We should also distinguish the kingdom of God, albeit carefully, from the idea of, um, or the closely related idea that, the, that God exercises dominion over the whole of creation by virtue of the fact that he created it. Um, for the Old Testament writers, creation is um, not a neutral concept. When God creates the universe, there is a sense in which he gains mastery over it and dominion over it. But that's not quite what the kingdom of God is about. It's not quite about God's mastery over God's uh, sovereignty, dominion over creation. Um, While God does have creation over the whole earth, uh, you don't really get to the, the idea of the kingdom of God until you start thinking about the role that humanity plays in this dominion over the whole of the earth. Over the earth. So let me get, get it this way. While God does have dominion over the whole earth, he has chosen to exercise his dominion indirectly through the rule of one of his creatures. This is what, this is what the kingdom of God is about. It's God exercising his dominion through the rule of one of his creatures, that creature known as humanity, or more specifically through the, rep, through the rule of a representative human, uh, a person called Adam. Now let me unpack what that's about. The idea of the kingdom of God is deeply rooted in the story of creation, the creation of humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. 
As I said, in Genesis 1, God establishes his mastery over all that he has made. But when we get to verse 26 of chapter 1, he appears to delegate his rule to someone else, um, to humanity. It says there, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they might rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the creatures that move along the ground. The picture here is that God intends to rule over creation through a creature, that creature known as humanity, that species known as humanity. And what he does, he he elevates that creature above all other creatures. Uh, Man is an animal. The evolutionists are right. But they're wrong because he is the animal who is elevated, who is given this high standing where he stands just below God to rule over the rest of creation. He is, if I can use this technical word, he is created to be um, God's vice. And there are two words you can use here. The word that's used in this country is the word vicegerent. Is anyone familiar with that? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. The word that I used growing up in Australia in the British Commonwealth is the word vice-regent. They are, apart from the word vice, they are simply not connected. They're two different roots. They basically mean the, the same thing. It's the idea of someone ruling on someone else's behalf. Uh, in Australia, um, the Queen, believe it or not, the Queen of England, is one of her titles is that she's Queen of Australia. Now, she doesn't live there. She, quote, rules in Australia by her representative, the, uh, called the Governor-General of Australia, and he is the vice-regent. We'll use the word vice-gerent, though, tonight for, because we're in America. Um, he's a person who rules on her behalf in Australia. And that's the concept that's going on there in Genesis 1. God is going to, has dominion over the whole of creation, but he has assigned, he has delegated that rule to one of the creatures, that is to uh, the creatures known as humanity. And they are supposed to rule over the world on God's behalf. Now, if you can understand that, you basically understood the concept of the kingdom of God, to grossly oversimplify things. Um, Now, in Genesis 2, the story gets refined a little bit. Genesis 1 portrays uh, a humanity, a people, as the one through whom God will rule the world. Uh, this, is, this is focused a little more on one person in chapter 2. So not only does God intend to rule over the world through a humanity, through a, the human of Genesis 1, but more specifically that task of ruling falls to one person, in fact to the representative human, to the person called Adam. Adam, by the way, in Hebrew simply means human, man. That's all it means. So his name is what he is. He is the quintessential human the one who represents, he is actually like a king of the whole of humanity. Now, if a humanity is, uh, of, if the humanity of Genesis 1, and of course we're really only talking about Adam and Eve, but it's still understood as a collective. If the humanity of Genesis 1 is the collective who acts as God's vicegerent, then Adam is the individual vicegerent. He's the one in whom it's all of this rule that's given to humanity is focused. And um, what is true for the group? is true for the individual, what is, is true for Adam as well. Now, that's the story. He's supposed to be there to rule over creation on God's behalf. Now, of course, you get to Genesis 3 and you catch up with a sad story of the dethronement of the king. See, my argument here is that Adam is actually portrayed as a king. You can study that to the, the interesting hints in the text as to why he's portrayed as a king. As God's king over creation, Adam is supposed to exercise authority over the creatures. 
And we get a glimpse of what this should look like in Genesis 2.20, where we see Adam naming the animals. He's exercising, as a classic ancient Near Eastern way of exercising royal authority. In naming them, he's exercising authority over the creatures. That's him being the vicegerent, exercising this kingly role. But in chapter 3, of course, as you know, the tables are turned. Instead of exercising dominion over the creature the serpent, and after all, the serpent in the narrative is simply presented as, a, as one of the creatures. Instead of exercising dominion over it, Adam succumbs to, t- to temptation and falls into rebellion against God. Kingdom order is turned upside down, and we basically live in this kind of upside-down world here, thereafter. The, the order should be something like, um, well, this, is, this is really a nice picture of the kingdom of God. Here is God. God is above Humanity, Adam, but he is above creation, the creatures and so forth. That's the way it should be. Loyal obedience to our God, dominion over the created realm. But things are turned around here. Um, the creature, in this case, the serpent is placed on top. God is placed underneath and everything is out of whack. Uh, and that's... That's the problem that we have here as the story starts to unfold. So Adam's sin means the loss of the kingdom. His exile from the garden is nothing less than the dethronement of the king and the temporary failure, if you like, of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes to a crashing halt in this part of the story. There is no king to rule the kingdom. Everything is disordered. Um, We need to solve a problem here. Now, this analysis of Genesis 1 to 3 should help us begin to make sense of how Israel and her kings fit into the story, into the story of redemption. Let me make this summary statement, and hopefully I can unpack it as we go along. In Genesis 12, the story of, beginning of the story of Abraham, when God elects Abraham and his seed, what he's doing is he's constituting, actually reconstituting a new humanity. Ultimately, this new humanity, Abraham and his seed, will, seem to be, will be seen to be the nation of Israel. And their calling, as the story unfolds, will be to take the place of the failed original humanity of Genesis 1 to 3. You understand Israel's role uh, by, by seeing it simply as the replacement of what the first humanity failed to be. Later on, with the anointing of David as king in 1 Samuel 16, uh, we, um, what we have there is the creation of a second Adam figure. Just as the first humanity of Genesis 1 has an individual reflex representative in Genesis 2, likewise the humanity, the, the nation created in Genesis 12 and following, eventually in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel with the anointing of David, you find that Israel has its individual reflex, that is King David. Um, let's see, we're somewhere in my notes. Um, yeah, he's a representative Israelite who will rule the world on God's behalf. He's actually going to stand in Adam's place. In short, while all the details of the story are going to take a while to get into clear focus, God's intention in the election of Abraham and his seed, in the election of Israel is that they and their king would establish the kingdom of God, actually, in a sense, re-establish the kingdom of God, and that Yahweh, the Lord, the creator God and the covenant God of Israel would once again rule over creation through the world world dominion of Israel 
and specifically through the wise and powerful rule of its king. Um, To phrase this just a little differently, the kingdom of God exists when creation, and especially the Gentile nations, submit to the Lord, submit to Yahweh, by submitting to the rule of his vicegerent, that is, Israel's king, if that's making sense. The kingdom of God exists, comes into existence, when Israel's king receives the obedience of the nations. That's uh, from Genesis 49. Uh, Jake, um, Israel's prophecy about the, the different tribes, about Judah, in the sense of Judah will one day have the obedience of the nations. Judah and ultimately David will rule over the nations and, and things will be set back into right again, set to right again. And uh, or when everything is under the king's feet, Psalm 8, verse 6, that's how Israel fits into the story. That's how the kingdom of God will be reestablished. Now, I don't know if you had the chance to read this little essay that I wrote and put on, on the web, but if um, you have, then you've, you've already been introduced to some of the things that I've been talking about. But instead of using Psalm 8, I'm going to use Psalm 2 to get a, a clearer understanding of what it means in the Old Testament, to get the Old Testament's vision of what the, uh, the, the kingdom of God is about. Okay, so Psalm 2. I assume that you know it fairly well. We're going to read through it. So at least it's... It should be generally in your head at this point um, because I'm going to make a couple of introductory comments. Firstly, is Psalm 8 a messianic psalm? Now, uh, the question is what, what does that mean? Let me firstly just ask the question, is Psalm 8 a messianic psalm? My answer is a typical Westminster answer, which is yes and no. Yeah. Someone once wrote one of these evaluations of me in the class and said, Enjoyed Professor Green's class, but it would be nice if he occasionally came down off the fence. Um, Before we look at the details of this psalm, let's look at that question. Um, Firstly, no, why I think it's actually not a Messianic psalm, not a psalm that talks about Jesus, in other words. Most people say that a Messianic psalm does not refer to people and events in the life setting of ancient Israel, but that psalm is entirely future-focused future-oriented, pointing forward to a future Messiah. In other words, there are many psalms that you just read them and say, oh, this is taken from the life of ancient Israel. Psalm 23 would be a good example. But Psalm 2 and other psalms are usually seen as being not fitting into that setting because they just don't make sense there in that original setting. They seem to be prophetic, pointing off to something in the future. And that's a very typical way of understanding messianic psalms. They're said to be direct prophecies of the coming about the coming Messiah. Good example of this would be Psalm forty-five, verse six. This is a psalm which is a somewhat strange psalm. It's a, talking about the marriage. Appears to be talking about the marriage of an Israelite king. But in the middle of this psalm, or at least a couple of verses into it, uh, we, the psalmist says this about the king. He says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever." Now, most conservative scholars say that this language could never be applied to a human king. Why? Well, because you would never use the language God, the word God, to describe a human king. So therefore, it's usually taken as a prophecy of the future Messiah who is God. That's a typical reading of it. Um, The one who would be both human and divine. Psalm 2, the one we're going to come to, is another obvious example. Why? From your memory banks, why do you think that Psalm 2 is usually understood as being a messianic psalm, a predictive psalm, talking only about Jesus? 
It's because of verse 7. He said to me, you are my son. We'll unpack that in a minute. Most people would say that no Israelite king could claim to be the son of God. That is a divine title given only to, uh, to Jesus. So people then say, of course, that means that Psalm 2 is a predictive messianic psalm pointing off to the future to the only person who can claim the title son of God, that is the God-man Jesus. My own take on both of these psalms is that they make perfect sense in the context of Israelite royal ideology. All kings in the line of David were understood to be metaphorical gods. Very, you actually need to see what I've written here. I've written gods, lowercase gods. I put it in quotation marks. Um, it's part of this larger theology. They're not God, the big God, Yahweh, but they're kind of understood as mini-gods. Uh, if I can, that's a strange way of putting it. But this, the language of, to, to use a language of divinity to refer to a human king is simply a hyperbolic extension of the idea that the king is the true bearer of the divine image. We'll back up one quick one. It's not in the notes, but I'll do it anyway. The whole idea of being in the divine image in Genesis 1 is that, that, that Adam was like God. Whatever in the divine image means, it means that there's something about humanity that's godlike. Um, that language is actually once Adam falls... Once you understand that, that David stands in the place of Adam, ultimately Israel's kings are understood to be the human beings who most fully bear the divine image. All of the Gentiles are actually less than the divine image. They're almost beasties. Read the story. Uh, I mentioned this in this article. This portrayal, this is something to pick up more in this piece here on Psalm 8, the portrayal of, of Goliath. In the story of David, David and Goliath, David is the true human. He is the true image bearer. Goliath is almost an animal. Some interesting ways that's, that's presented there. But the, the Israelite king is the true image bearer. There's something almost divine about him. He's the true image bearer. So you can get the language of he's made a little lower than God. Or he's God in quotation marks. Um, so he's understood to be the true image bearer. But likewise, the, the Israelite king is also understood to be um, the human son of God. Now, these are probably concepts that are a little bit unusual for you. It's the idea of the human son of God. I'm going to come back to that point in a minute. The bottom line is that I think just about every psalm uh, that people take to be messianic, in other words, direct prophecies of Jesus, are simply royal psalms. Psalms that are perfectly comprehensible in the context of Israel's royal theology, which is this exalted royal theology where kings are not divine, but they're metaphorically divine, if I can put it that way. To, to phrase things just slightly more provocatively, I think that there actually I think there are no messianic psalms in the Psalter. I think, at least not in the way that most people define that. Having said that, out of the other side of my mouth, I believe that there are many messianic psalms in the Psalter. In fact, I would actually say that the whole Psalter is messianic. Um, students who have me in class, they'd come away saying, oh, you read so many psalms Christocentrically that no one... Christocentrically. You, you read Christ into them in a way that no one else does. I read Psalm 23 as a, as a messianic psalm. I read Psalm 51 as a messianic psalm. I find messianic psalms all over the place. 
But that would be another story for another day. Okay, let me just go back to Psalm 2. I think it is a Messianic psalm. psalm. Um, let me, although I think it makes perfect sense in the context of ancient Israelite royal theology, but you have to remember some things about Israel's kings. You have to understand that Israel's king, David, and his successors, they stand in Adam's place. Their vocation is to rule the world on God's behalf. But, of course, no Israelite king ever got close to doing that. Um, There was a little problem with sin. There was a big problem with sin. Uh, All of Israel's um, kings, even at their peak, David and Solomon, their their task was to do what Adam failed to do, to extend the boundaries of the kingdom of God, to take it way out to cover the whole world. And in Solomon's time, the kingdom of God, that is the boundaries of Israel, went out as far as uh, the border of Egypt in the south and the uh, Tigris, sorry, the Euphrates River in the north. Basically, that would be modern-day Israel, most of Jordan, probably Lebanon, and a chunk of Syria. That's not bad, but it's hardly a world-class empire. That's not world dominion, but that's as good as it got. Why? Because the problem with Israel and her kings, read through the books of Samuel and Kings, is that Israel and her kings were all covenant breakers. That's why the kingdom never extended out to where it should have because of their, um, their failure. They sinned, they fell short of the glorious inheritance that belonged to them by virtue of their status as second Adam figures. That's the first time I've used that phrase. Israel's kings are second Adam figures. Yes, I know that language will be applied to Christ, but in the Old Testament, that concept, not the words, but the concept is, uh, is, uh, is rooted in the idea of Israelite theology, Israelite royal theology. Kings stand in the place of Adam. Because what that means, though, is that Psalm 1, Psalm 2, I'm sorry, expresses only an ideal. This is a description of how things should be with Israel's kings. It provides a picture of the kingdom of God and more specifically a picture of Israelite kingship as it was meant to be, but ultimately failed to be. Judged by the facts or judged against the facts of Israel's history of covenant faithlessness, Psalm 2 could be read as a cruel joke. Glorious destiny, except they keep sinning all the time. They never, never make it. They never become the, the kind of people they're supposed to be. They never have world dominion. So the Lord's promise that Israel's king will rule the nations with an iron scepter, in verse 9, could never be fulfilled as long as Israel's kings proved to be just as wicked as the Gentiles. See, the problem with Israel's kings is that they end up being just as bad as the people they're supposed to be defeating, overcoming. That they, just like the Gentiles, refuse to submit to the Lord's claim on their lives. And of course, that means that their story, this glorious ideal of what kingship should look like and the kingdom should look like, never happens in Israel's history, because they always end up in failure. On the other hand, the story of Israel and her kings is also a story about the covenant faithfulness of God. We must always always remember that the Lord promised to make the seed of Abraham a great nation. Genesis 12. So all through the story of failure, there's this promise of God way back at the beginning of, you're going to be a great nation. And if God is going to keep his promises, that has to happen. That's driving the story is driving forward in two directions. One, Israel's sin, Israel's failure keeps many their story's going to always end up in a disaster. But undergirding this is God's promise to make Israel a great nation. He's committed then to driving it to a positive conclusion. 
It, it has an eschatology, to use a technical word. It has a climax, an end, a glorious destiny that it must get to. So it's God's covenant faithfulness that drives this story to a future. And it means that this ideal that they always fail to reach must one day be reached. More specifically, the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord, he'd made a covenant promise to Abraham. Sorry, to David, not Abraham. Uh, he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, if God is a covenant-keeping God, then one day he must fulfill his promises and must establish his kingdom on earth through the rule of a, an Israelite Davidic king. Davidic is simply the adjective from the word David. This means that while Psalm 2 expresses ideals about Israelite theology, royal theology, it also describes Israel's glorious destiny. This is where the story must go because of God's covenant faithfulness. This glorious destiny when one day God will raise up a, a king who will stand in Adam's place and who will rule the world on God's behalf. In other words, Psalm 2, yes, it's simply a royal psalm that works in that original context. It fits the ancient setting, but it also has an eschatological orientation, uh, an end-time orientation. It looks beyond its moment in history to the climax of Israel's story when the ideal, which never happened during Israel's history, will one day, yes, one day, will become a reality and one day Israel's king will rule the world. So in this sense, I do read Psalm 2 as a messianic psalm. It talks about the kingdom of God in a way that could fit any Israelite king in ancient Israel, but it looks beyond that moment to a greater covenant-keeping king in the line of David who would one day make Psalm 2 a reality and not just an ideal. In other words, Psalm 2 has both a historical and a prophetic sense. That was a long way of saying, yeah, it's messianic in an indirect kind of way. Everyone's happy. Okay. Now, let's read through the psalm together. Mostly, I'll be reading through the NIV. Twelve verses. Nice little bit of Hebrew poetry here. Uh, broken down into four stanzas. Each of uh, three verses take them one at a time. It's going to work through them and ask questions like, what does this tell us about the kingdom of God um, and Israel's role in it? Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his anointed one. Look at that, that attack. It's a double attack against Yahweh and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Now, these three verses give us the immediate setting. They recognize, actually, that since the fall, the kingdom of God will only come through conflict, through overcoming enmity that word that you get from Genesis 3, the enmity that exists between two seeds. When, when Adam is charged with extending the boundaries of the kingdom of God, he is to do it naturally through procreation. Be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. It's, there's, no, there's no opposition to stop the extension of the kingdom of God in Genesis 1 and 2. But after the fall, because of this enmity between the two seeds, the kingdom only comes, will only come by overcoming those who would oppose it. This is the new situation inherited by this, this Davidic king. Let's, let's simplify things and call the hero of Psalm 2 David, just, just to make it simple. You see this picture, surrounding nations have been brought under his control, but they will not easily submit to his rule. That is the very nature of the kingdom 
in this stage. Israel's king rule stands in Adam's place, but the, but the people who are supposed to be submitting just are constantly in rebellion. And their rebellion must be overcome before the kingdom comes in fullness. These verses, though, give us an important insight into an essential characteristic of the kingdom of God. And as I said earlier, and I'll repeat this many times, the Lord intended to rule over creation through his vicegerent, through Adam. Now that role has been transferred to David. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of David. They're coterminous, they're the same idea. To rebel, and you see this, to rebel against the human king is to rebel against the God who stands behind him. So who are they rebelling against? Well, they're rebelling against the Lord and against his anointed. The anointed is simply another way of referring to the, to the king. He's anointed to be king. And so the rebellion of the kings, of these Gentiles, is at the same time a rebellion against the king, Israel's king, and the Lord as well. So there's a double dimension. that The kingdom of God is the kingdom of his anointed king. Stanza 2, Yahweh's response to this rebellion. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, sorry, wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Oh, that is such a fun verse. I wish we had 10 minutes to uh, tell you what's going on. I have installed my king. Uh, It's, no, don't even do it. No, don't do it. Don't do it. Here's where we start to see some stronger conceptual links back to Genesis 1 and 2. Yahweh is the king of the universe. Uh, He is the one enthroned in heaven. In fact, that is where the Lord dwells. He's up in heaven and humanity is exercising dominion underneath heaven on earth. And his vicegerent, David, is ruling over his earthly kingdom as his representative. The rebellious leaders, these Gentile rebels, simply do not understand this connection. As far as they're concerned, they are just rebelling against some insignificant Israelite king. It's like... New Zealand attacking Australia. That's about the level of importance of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but things are not as they seem. This king, you know, he's an insignificant country. Judah is really not that important. But this king derives his power and his right to rule from none other than the king of heaven. More than that, he rules on the Lord's holy mountain. Now, in one level, this means that David rules from the same mountain where the Lord had his dwelling on earth. Uh, just the picture in, this, in Jerusalem is that there's Mount Zion, there's the temple, and off to the side is the palace. And that is, that is symbolic of, um, of this reality, the Lord and the king closely connected. In fact, there's this text of Psalm 110 where the Lord says, sit at my right hand, says the king. He sits The king is the man who sits at the right hand of God on Mount Zion. Actually, more than that, that is is just supposed to be a replica of what is going on in heaven. In the mythology, if I can use that word, the theology of Israel, the king, as it were, also dwells at the right hand of God in in heaven. It's very complex. But that's what's going on here. He's uh, seated, he's installed, or whatever that word means, on God's holy mountain. There's this close link between God and king. Um, once again, you just see that the two things, that God and king so closely related, is the kingdom of God, well, it's also the kingdom of David. Yahweh's laughter, of course, should not be taken as amusement. If you hear laughter coming from heaven, 
by and large, it would be a good thing to step out of the way. Um, in the ancient world, gods laugh because they're happy or sometimes because they're about to launch war against their enemies, and that's the kind of laughter that you hear here. The context makes it clear. This is a mocking, derisive laughter. You fools, you don't, know, don't you know who this man is? He's not on the throne because of political manoeuvring or because he has popular support. I chose him. I anointed him. I put him there. He's my right-hand man ruling from my earthly dwelling place over my kingdom because the kingdom of God is simply the kingdom of David backed by Israel's God. Okay, third stanza. Now it gets interesting and more complex. I will proclaim the Lord's decree or the decree of the Lord. Now the king speaks. He said to me, the king, the God said to me, is what that means, the king speaking, you are my son. Now in your NIV versions, that, that, that son is capitalized. In the version I just read, I took out the capital letter so that you don't yet take it to refer to Christ, not just yet. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, most Christian readers assume that this, this passage, finally, we are now talking about Jesus because it's the Son of God. No, not yet. Verse 7, though, shifts to the first person. The king now speaks, I will recite the Lord's decrees. Um, the king himself is speaking, and he's about to give the reason why these, um, these nations should submit to his rule. And he, gives, he, he refers to or recounts a decree, which are words spoken to him by the Lord at some time in the past. Words that when he, the, the Lord makes him his son. Now, the most striking thing about this decree is that the Lord calls a human, a regular human being, my son. Now, that begs an interesting question. It would be how and ultimately when might God say to a man, you are my son, today I have become your father, or as the King James puts it, today I have begotten thee. To put it in another way, how and when can an ordinary man like David, an ordinary human like David, become the son of God? I'm kind of bending some of your categories, I suspect, here. Okay. To answer these questions, cast from your mind, this might help, cast from your mind any notions of the eternal sonship of the second person of the Trinity. We are not in that category right now. So when I talk about Son of God, I'm not talking about the eternal second person of the Trinity at this point. I'm talking about an idea of the human Son of God. This psalm is talking about um, yeah, the human Son of God. Let me lay out what I think is going on here. An ordinary human being becomes the Son of God either when he became the king of Israel, when he's enthroned as king, or more likely, as I think is the case here, when he was anointed by the prophet, acting on God's behalf, and set apart to be the anointed king, the king waiting to be enthroned. I think that's actually what's going on here. That, that what David is recounting, the decree of the Lord, is the word spoken to him by the prophet, by Samuel, when he was anointed as king. On that day... In the theology of kingship of ancient Israel, he becomes the human son of God. It's as it were, he's adopted as the son of God. Um, 
he becomes, let's see, uh, yeah, David's own story. He doesn't actually become king until 2 Samuel 7, but he'd already been anointed by Samuel back in 1 Samuel 16. And I suggest it's on that day that he became the human son of God, the second Adam, Adam reborn, as it were. Now, the roots of this theology are found in the early chapters of Genesis. First, Adam is understood to be both the bearer of the divine image. He is the godlike human. He is that animal who is, looks awfully like God. Very interesting, extremely high anthropology in Genesis 1. And he is the one who is going to rule the world for God. In addition, in Genesis 5, 1 to 3, we don't have time to read it. But there you get this language of um, when Adam had a son, he has a son in his own image and likeness. Very interesting because what that, that text does, it links the two concepts of God-likeness, image of God language, links it with the idea of being a son and says that those two concepts are very closely related. Um, this, this connection led later interpreters to understand Adam both as the, the bearer of the divine image, the God-like human, but also as the human son of God. To be in the image of God is to be also the the human son of God. And then you take that theology and you bring it across to the Israel's kings, the second Adam figures, and they become, um, they're understood to be the, the guys who are, are the, the new bearers of the divine image. They are the God-like human beings. That is why in Psalm 8, which I read as a, as a royal psalm, if you read that, the language, what is man? Basically, what is the man? And the man is the true human. And who is the true human? It's the Israelite king. He is the one true human in a world of semi-human people. He's the one true human. You made him a little lower. This is the language of image and likeness, God-likeness. The way it's put in Psalm 8 is you made him just a, a tad short of divine, crowned with glory and honor. That is divine language. He is uh, glorious. Um, it's, it's Psalm 45, the passage we looked at earlier, where this language of uh, your throne, O God, that's spoken to the king. He is, he is so much the, the, the image bearer of God that you can call him God, small g, in quotation marks, because he's clearly not God himself. That makes The next couple of verses make that clear. But that's his language. There's two strands that come out of the identity of the king as a second Adam figure, two strands that are developed in, in the, the Psalter. One is his God-likeness. The other is his sonship. So Psalm 2 picks up this other dimension of the king's Adamic, A-D-A-M-I-C, the adjective form from Adam, the, the other dimension of his Adamic identity. Not only is the king the new godlike human, he is also God's new human son. And the same thought, can you, you can see that in passages like 2 Samuel 7.14. This is the, the covenant made with David. I will be, God speaking, I will be his father and he will be my son. That's the relationship between God and the king. And Psalm 89, 26 and 27. He will call out to me. The king will call out to me, call out to God, and he will say, you are my father. And I, God, will appoint him as my firstborn. What's that? That is second Adam language. The king is God's new firstborn. Who was the original firstborn? It was Adam. The king stands in, in that place. So like Adam, David is the human son of God that God appoints to rule the world on his behalf. David is the second Adam. He's the, the new human who is like God as a son is like his father. 
So he, he's the one who can call God Father. Now, against this background, verses 8 and 9 start to make a lot more sense. They, at least they do for me. Let me paraphrase. Psalms 8 and 9 in this irregular translation say, well, because you're my son, because you are in this relationship of that's, it's really a second Adam position, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Let me paraphrase that. Don't worry, David, about these rebellious kings. You are second Adam. I have given to you the world dominion once given to the first Adam. To you belongs the right to subdue the earth. Despite the enmity that has existed since the fall, David, you rule the world on my behalf. It's yours, buddies, buddy. It's, you know, son, it's yours. It's like a father speaking to a son. I own it and I'm giving it all to you. So just ask for it. It belongs to you. You stand in Adam's place. The nations and the ends of the earth, I'm giving them to you as your, as your inheritance for you to rule with an iron scepter. Understanding this link is crucial. To be the anointed king is to become the human son of God, the second Adam, and with that comes the, the right to rule the world, the whole world, for God. Therefore, it's no accident. Just pick up how, how understand now how the story of David and Goliath works. Uh, I talk about that in a different way in that article there. Um, but it's no accident. In, in second, first, sorry, first Samuel sixteen, David's anointed. Actually, he becomes he gets the spirit. He becomes spirit man, um, which is actually again the language of of um, image and likeness. To have the spirit is to have the image of God. So he's he's when he's anointed as king in second Samuel. Keep saying that. First Samuel seventeen sixteen. Um, he he then is in the second Adam figure. He's a second Adam figure. He has the right to rule the nations. So what does he do next? What is the next thing that happens in the narrative? It's the story of David and Goliath. He takes on the great Gentile Goliath. The Goliath story is logically and inevitably connected to David's anointing. Goliath challenges Israel to send out a champion. He's like the rebellious guys in verse 1 of Psalm 2. He says, listen, if you, can, if you can defeat me, we'll become your subjects, we'll become your slaves. And out comes this young boy with sticks and stones. But what the Philistine doesn't know is that this boy, this little kid with sticks and stones, is none other, none other than the human son of God, the newly anointed second Adam who has the world, the nations, the Gentiles as his inheritance and has the right to bring them all into subjection to, to, to King, King Yahweh. If Goliath had known that, he would have stepped back quickly. He would have read the scene very differently. And, of course, that's why he falls. Not because, the, not because David has got you know, really good with a sling. Yeah, that's part of it. But it's, he's there as the one who has dominion over the Gentiles. Of course he's going to win. Hopefully you can start to see maybe the pieces are beginning to fall together. The kingdom of God means the rule of the Lord's human son over the whole of creation. Okay, quickly, verses... uh, Oh, okay, pressing along. Uh, The last couple of verses. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve, or better translation might be, worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the Old Testament gospel invitation. It's actually what our gospel is too, if you think about it. It is the announcement of amnesty, forgiveness for rebellious sinners. 
to those who will submit to uh, the rule of Israel's king and worship Israel's God, there is a promise that they will avoid God's punishing anger. Um, so what's the best advice to give someone who refuses to enter the kingdom of God, who rebels against the creator of the universe and against the man he's anointed to rule the world? It's worship the Lord and kiss, that's imagery for submit to his human son. But that takes us once again to the heart of the Old Testament's definition of the kingdom of God. It's about people, be they Jews or Gentiles, living lives of worship to Israel's God and submission to Israel's king. Now at that point I could stop because I fulfilled my obligation is to talk about the Old Testament, but I can't stop. I'll steal a few more minutes and try and talk about how does the story climax in Jesus? That story in Psalm 2, of course, never happened, never fully came into existence. Um, None of those Israelite kings ever measured up to their calling. They all sinned. They all fell short. They would prove to be just as sinful as the first Adam. But you get to the end of the Old Testament, you enter the beginning of the New Testament, and you start to wonder, is or how is God going to to, uh, establish his kingdom on earth? But nonetheless, you've got your ears open. You've got your categories for thinking now about what the kingdom of God is like. And then you hear Jesus announcing at the opening of his ministry, it's simply, the time is fulfilled. Okay, it's all now going to happen. The, the story is coming to a climax. The kingdom of God is at hand. Many passages have this, that kind of language. This is nothing less than the proclamation of the arrival of God's human son, the new and final second Adam, who will rule the world on God's behalf. It's, it's not just the announcement of the kingdom, but the coming of the king. This insight allows us to, I think, to quickly, and I can do this very quickly, to trace the contours of Jesus' ministry using Psalms 2 and its vision of the, the, uh, the kingdom of God. I'm going to kind of, I'll take Psalm 2 and I'm going to connect it up with Luke's account of the coming of the kingdom. Let's quickly go through a couple of points in Luke's, Luke's gospel, which when I say Luke's gospel, I mean his two-part gospel, Acts, Luke and then Acts. I think it's all one book. Uh, best read that way. Uh, Luke's story opens with a surprisingly long introduction about an older couple, childless couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. What's striking about this story is its similarities to the story of Hannah. Um, I can't get into this, but I think Luke's point in drawing out these similarities is to get the reader to interpret that child of that marriage, John the Baptist, not only as a new Elijah, but as a new Samuel. And, of course, this raises the expectation that Jesus should be understood as a new David who will be anointed by the new Samuel. In chapter 3, Jesus comes to John to be baptised. Or is it anointed? It's the same event. His baptism is his anointing as king. And in verses 21 and 22, Luke writes, And he, John, was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, on Jesus, in bodily form. And you know how it goes. And a voice comes from heaven. You are my son. Straight out of Psalm 2, with you I'm well pleased. So at his baptism, Jesus hears the words spoken to David in Psalm 2, verse 7. Words spoken, I think, at David's anointing. And just as the Spirit came on David in 1 Samuel 16, 13, the same thing happens to Jesus. What does this mean? The baptism of Jesus is also his anointing as king. He is being chosen, set apart, and commissioned. In fact, he becomes the human not the divine son of God. He is already the divine son of God. That, that is already part of his identity. Now being added to this is a second son identity, his identity as the human son of God. He is now be, he's now becoming the second Adam. 
the bearer of the divine image, the spirit-empowered man, the man through whom God will rule the earth. Well, I said the same thing about David. But listen to the difference between David's story and, and Jesus' story. This is my son, quote from Psalm 2, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Uh, these additional words, probably drawn from Isaiah 42, seem to set Jesus off from every other second Adam figure that had ever existed. This one is different. This son of God is different. This one's going to be obedient. This one, I'm going to be pleased with this one. This son of God will pass the test. Uh, that's what this text is telling us, telling us that finally, at long last, God's plan to rule the world through an obedient son, a loyal son. Finally, they're about to come true in Messiah Jesus. Now, let me try and clinch this Jesus-David linkage that I'm making. Luke 3, we've had the, the baptism. In Luke 3, Jesus is baptized, and I contend he becomes the second and final uh, Adam. At this point, Jesus launches, uh, sorry, Luke launches into a really exciting bit of narrative. The genealogy. What? <laughs> now, I would have expected it to come earlier in the narrative with Jesus' birth, just like it did in Matthew. But Luke holds the genealogy back for a very special reason. Let me read you excerpts from this exciting narrative. Um, now, Jesus was a son, or so it was thought, thought of Joseph. Then comes a list of about 40 names. Not that exciting. Nathan, the son of David. So he's the son of David. Another 30 or so names. The son of Enos. The son of Seth. The son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is not a divine son of God. He's the human son of God. And Jesus is putting that in that line. What's Luke's point? The long hoped for king of Israel, true David, true Adam, the human son of God has finally come. From an Old Testament standpoint, this is good news. In fact, this is the gospel of the gospels. The kingdom of God, God's rule over the earth through his human son, is inaugurated in the ministry of Jesus. Or as Luke puts it in, in chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus travels around proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. All that was prophesied in, in Psalm 2 is now coming true. The king that Psalm 2 spoke of is here. He's not yet enthroned. He is the anointed but not yet enthroned king. He is living the same life that David lives between um, anointing and enthronement. He is like David, a king in waiting already doing battle with the enemies of God. That's David. David is the king in waiting. He's just doing battle with God's enemies. That's what Jesus does as well. He goes out and does battle with the great enemy, not Goliath. No, you discover in the Gospels, oh, heck, the real enemy was not the Gentiles. The real enemy is Satan. And he goes out and does battle with, with Satan. Then we get to Luke's Gospel, part two, which is the book of Acts. So we get the story of the king enthroned. Um, opening chapters of Luke's uh, second volume, the story comes to a surprising climax. Like Jesus' disciples, we might have thought that the story is going to be all about how the king is going to drive out the Romans. That's what they're thinking. The Gentiles, they're the enemy, they're going to be driven out. But in his Pentecost sermon, Peter sends us in a totally different direction. He explains to his audience that the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to God's right, right hand is the true fulfillment of Psalm 2. Jesus has not been installed on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but in the heavenly Mount Zion, at the very right hand of God. If you were looking for a king in Jerusalem, you missed the point. That was just a picture. That was a, a, a shadow. The reality is that this king now sits at the very right hand of God himself in heaven. In other words, for the apostles, the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus of Nazareth is nothing less than the enthronement of the second Adam. 
the true human son of God to right, God's right hand. Anointed and now in resurrection and exaltation, he's now enthroned. It is the coming of the kingdom with power, Romans 1. The ideal that Adam never reached, the ideal that David and his descendants only partially achieved, is now a reality. And now this king offers amnesty, forgiveness to all who would repent of their rebellion and and submit to his rule. That's how the sermon in Acts 2 ends. The people are cut to the quick and they say, what should we do? And he says, repent. Peter says, repent and you will receive forgiveness. Turn from your rebellion and you will receive amnesty from this king. And the message of this enthronement, of, of Christ's enthronement, is the core of the gospel. It's, it's an Old Testament message. The basic Christian affirmation, Jesus is Lord, is, that I believe, the heart of the gospel. It simply means that the, gospel, that, that, that the kingdom of Israel's God has been inaugurated and that he's ruling through his exalted son, Jesus the Messiah, and God's original intention for creation is coming to fulfilment. Jesus is Lord. Another way of saying that is our God reigns. And he does so through his true human son, finally. Um, the rest of Acts, the king claims his inheritance. If the risen and exalted Christ now sits at God's right hand, we're getting to the end, yep. Um, if he sits at, at, on the true throne of David, if Christ sits on the true throne of David, then Adam's dominion belongs to him. If he is the true Adam sitting on that, on that throne, true second Adam, to him belongs the whole world. Or as Psalm 2 puts it, the nations are his inheritance and the ends of the earth are his possession. Once you understand that the resurrection is the enthronement of the king who is entitled to the world as his, as his inheritance, then the preaching of the, then the... Actually, the rest of the book of Acts will make sense. Why all this stuff about missions and evangelism? Because that's what you do if the king who owns the world is on his throne. It just flows so naturally out from it. Um, the story of the preaching of the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, is simply Jesus is king, is simply the story of the king claiming what is rightfully his. See, we, we have such a wimpy gospel. Would you like to accept Jesus? I mean, Jesus will make your life feel better. Make you feel better. No, no, it's not that. This king is sitting... I know it doesn't look like it. I know that the Christians are such a pathetic little group of people, but their king sits at the very right hand of God and he, he owns this whole world and he calls you to submission. It's a, it's a much strong and powerful gospel, stronger and more powerful than the one that we often proclaim. Um, if the nations are his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession, then the only logical thing that the king should tell his subjects is, of course, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, oh, in all Judea, oh, in Samaria, and, of course, to the ends of the earth. Why? Because he owns up to the ends of the earth. Um, missions or evangelism is simply the logical and inevitable response to the fact that the Son is enthroned, that Jesus is Lord. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. See the connection there? All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. I own, in fact, I have authority not just over the world, but the whole universe. It's all expanded. It's all blown up. He says, so, so therefore, if I'm king, what do you do? Go, therefore, and make disciples. It just flows out naturally. In fact, the confession, Jesus, in, Jesus is Lord, is simply a post-resurrection way of proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. But if we recognize the Adamic 
and Davidic origins of the concept of the kingdom of God that allows us to see the universal and world-claiming character of this proclamation. To say Jesus is Lord means that right now, sitting at God's right hand, there is a man who has the right to rule the whole world on God's behalf. So to put it simply, the entire world belongs to him. And if Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. If Jesus is Lord, Satan and his hordes aren't. And if, if Jesus is Lord, death isn't. If Jesus is Lord, nothing else in this world is, and the world must be told that. If Jesus is Lord, then every being in this world must be called to submission, to respond in any other way, because it doesn't take the gospel seriously enough. So we also need to note that while the gospel proclamation Jesus is Lord simply means that the, Jesus has been enthroned and he's extending his kingdom, we also know that the, kingdom, the, the, the king is on his throne, but he does not yet have world dominion. We're actually in this time now when the king is enthroned, but he's in this process of gaining world dominion. Ultimately, at the second coming, he will take control of this whole world. We live, though, in the age between his enthronement and that time when every knee will be brought in, will bow in submission to him. Only on that day will every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We live in expectation, and that is revealed to the whole world. Whereas Paul puts it, we long for the day. Well, as Paul puts it, Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. See, we're in that time he's ruling, but not, everything is not yet under his feet. Gradually, though, as the gospel spreads, his feet are taking control of more territory until the day when he returns and will take control of all that is not yet under his dominion. Uh, Christ reigns, as I said, but not all the enemies are not yet under his feet. But that's exactly what Psalm 2 describes. The king is enthroned, but his, his victory is utterly assured. See, people are still in rebellion, but his victory is utterly assured because of God who stands behind him. Well, that takes us, last paragraph, to Paul's climactic vision of the kingdom of God. Philippians 2, Paul describes the climax of the kingdom. The once anointed king, the once enthroned king, will become the king with universal dominion. And it's this glorious vision that he has. God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, because Jesus is Lord, our God reigns. Okay, that gives five minutes for questions. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, basically, I packed the whole Bible into an hour. So, and It's a period where... Oh, yes, uh, how does the period of the judges... Thank you. How, do the, how does the period of the judges fit into this? This is... Uh, the judges seem to... It's a period of just anticipating the coming of the king. You get this long period from uh, when Israel is chosen to be God's people, but the focus on a king takes quite a while to happen, you know, actually a couple of hundred years. In many ways, the judges function as um, foreshadowings of the king, but they're very imperfect foreshadowings. But they give, they give you a hint as to what the role of the judge is. He is the one who saves Israel from the Gentiles. They're all pretty abysmal, fairly abysmal examples, though, of what, what the ideal leader is like. Okay. Uh, okay, that's too hard.
<laughs> That's too hard? Okay, we'll take the first one. What are the similarities or differences between a good Israelite citizen in the Old Testament and being a Christian in the New Testament? Hmm. Uh, the similarity is that both, in is- both Israelites and uh, Christians are called to covenant faithfulness, a call to obedience, to submit to the, the, the lordship of, well, God's lordship. The differences, I would say, is that the shape of Christian obedience is gospel-shaped, not law-shaped. Now, the two are overlapping. This is one of the points that the confession makes, is that, uh, that there's a, we, we, part of the way we know how to live is that we take the moral law and apply that to a Christian life. So there's a kind of an overlap. But I'd still want to say that we are call, all called to obedience to the Lord, but there's a different shape to it. Uh, ours is more gospel-centered, in fact, more spirit-centered than it was in for ancient Israel. Um, simple examples, we do not observe ceremonial laws, Old Testament laws, but... Uh, yeah, different shape might be the simplest way, general way of, of um, explaining it. What role do the prophets play in the kingdom of God in the Old Testament? Hmm. The, the prophets uh, function ultimately as uh, covenant lawyers. This is probably not quite the answer. Sorry? Yes, spoke, they're, they're spokespeople. Let me unpack what that, how that works is that that Israel is in a covenant relationship with, with the Lord. What the prophet does, he mediates between both sides. He calls both sides to covenant faithfulness. 99 times out of 100, that means that the, that the prophet comes from the Lord and says, thus says the Lord. Uh, and he says, you know, Israel, you are not keeping covenant and calls them back to repentance, calls them back to covenant faithfulness. One time in a hundred, he actually calls the Lord to covenant faithfulness. Uh, Exodus 32, a very interesting example of the Lord calling upon the Lord to make sure that he keeps covenant faithfulness as well. So that's, that's the role. Israel uh, lives in, in, a, in a relationship of, co- of a covenant-structured relationship with the Lord and the prophet. The fundamental um, role is to, is to call Israel back to faithfulness uh, Israel, the kingdom of God will not come in its fullness until um, until Israel becomes a covenant-keeping people. So the prophets, in that sense, serve the kingdom by uh, seeking to create a people worthy of the calling of the kingdom of God. Of course, they, in a sense, fail too uh, until the coming of the covenant lawyers. Um, contract is not the right way of getting it. Covenant is, is Israel is bound. Well, good example. Um, all of us who are married are in a covenant relationship with our spouses. We were not in a relationship. We have entered into a relationship and we have bound that relationship up by um, words of um, promise, basically a contractual agreement that we've entered into through marriage. And that's what Israel is, is in a relationship with the Lord. It's, it's, it is a love relationship that the Lord has to them at least, but it is a relationship which is structured by the, by the Lord's promise to, uh, uh, 
well, to conduct himself in a certain way towards Israel. So it's, it's, a, it's a covenantally structured relationship. Still they come. Okay. Can we confidently say that we, the Christians of today, are gods? Yes. Uh, if not, what do we need to do to take back that position? I feel a heresy coming on. Um, yeah, we're gods. We are... We are, we are not God. We never will be God. Keep that one clear. Uh, we are though. We are the ones in whom the image of God is being restored because we are in Christ, who is the true image bearer. There is no more God-like human being than Jesus Christ. Oh, well, there's a reason for that because He's God. Uh, he is the God-like human being who is who actually is God. But we, we never attain that status. But in Christ, though, the glorious... See, what he has as a human being is his glorious status. The word glory in the, in the New Testament is actually an extension of this idea of to be in the image of God. And it's um, in Christ we have that glory. In Christ we, re, we, we regain our lost near divinity. If I can put it... I'm, yeah, our lost small g godness, if I can put it that way. So it's an in Christ. Uh, while all this language of, the, of um, the language of glorification is simply the language of the restoration of the image of God. When we say, I hope to be glorified, it's simply us saying, I hope to have uh, the original glory of Adam. In fact, it's a better glory that Adam once had, which is the, the glory of a, of a people who are a little less than God crowned with glory and honor um, I, I would I really I don't want to push this too far but I I think we really need to work a lot more on our Christian anthropology we, we emphasize how many times how many times have you heard the sermon you rotten lousy Christians you are just worm horrible sinners you're no better than just all the rotten pagans out out there fortunately you're forgiven sometimes that's as good as it gets for us Christians I want to say no that, that that speaks a great truth. We are, in fact, we are still in Adam, but we, are, we have a double identity. We are in Adam, but, but actually we're also in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we also can speak a different language about ourselves, that in Christ you are glorious. In Christ you are beautiful, glorious beings. In fact, that's the whole point of the Spirit. The Spirit, what makes you actually are different from what you were like before you became Christians because you have the Spirit. Yes, you do not have the Spirit in fullness. You only have the Spirit as a down payment, as a hint of what is yet to come. But the Spirit marks you off as a different people. One difference is that you, whereas you could do nothing but sin, now you can, you are able to not sin. You are not sinless. None of us are sinless, but there, there, is, there is a significant transformation in our identity. It's an in-Christ identity which we are more glorious than we often talk to ourselves about. I'd like to see us preach and counsel more out of who we are in Christ, our glorious identity in Christ, rather than saying, oh, what lousy sinners you are. Rather than saying, then our sin becomes, when we sin, it's not so much, well, there we go again. Rather, it's, that's not who I really am. It's a falling short of, of what I am capable of being. Sin becomes not the real me, but it's the aberration of who I am. So I still affirm everything that 
classic theology affirms about our sinfulness. I'm not denying that, but I want to, I want to really run with our, our new identity in Christ and actually counsel and preach much more out of that, out of our near divinity, if I can put it that way. That didn't answer the question, but it was a good ramble. Um, do I recall correct, correctly that when Saul lost God's favor, God's actually removed his spirit from Saul? Yep, exactly. See, Saul, when you became king, you received the spirit that empowered you to be king. When Saul sins, he's actually a, he's a second Adam figure in the sense that he, he, when he's king, he's Adam. He's like Adam is that he sins and he ends up losing the kingdom just like Adam did. And he also loses this uh, wonderful, glorious status that he had as, as a king and the spirit is taken from him. That raises the question, why then, when David sinned as abysmally as, as Saul did, why is, why is he still retained as king? Well, the main reason for that is that he has a covenant. He has a covenant relationship with God that God cannot throw him out, as it were. He's still bound into, um, into David because of that covenant promise that's made. Um, Saul never, never got a covenant promise. But yeah, um, the spirit was a passing experience. Virginia, one more. Everyone needs to go home to their... Yeah, um, that, is, that is too hard a question. That, that is, a, that is a, a wrinkle in the whole thing, is that God, uh, God condemns Israel for their desire for a king. Um, that's why people struggle with that for a long while. It, it apparently, it's, it might be to do with the reason that they want a king. That their, the, I don't know, it might be that they seem to, that their wanting of a king is actually a, looks to be a dethroning of the Lord's kingship over them. See, David's kingship will ultimately be a kingship where you can make two statements at the same time. David is king, the Lord is king. One does not deny the other. It may well be that when Israel first asked for a king, uh, that is actually seen as a way of dethroning the Lord in some way. That's, that's me guessing. I don't know that stuff well. You're about to quote a verse at me, aren't you? Yep, there is an expectation in Deuteronomy that Israel will have a king. So it's not, it's not wrong that Israel gets a king, which makes me suspect that what goes on in Judges uh, is, is some, there's some wrong motivation involved there. Yes. Yeah, it, it's, it seems to be that the nature of the kingship they want. They do not want this kind of kingship where you get David and the Lord together. It's, it's, they seem to be wanting to split the two apart. 